Alright, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, and then we're going to move into chapter 4 after that, Lord willing. So, uh, again, as we left off last week, we looked at, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Now, we saw last week that Jesus was preaching in spirit through Noah when He was obedient in a time of wickedness. Now... Peter continues using Noah's situation as an example, uh, but this time he references the fact that the water that brought judgment in the flood is also a part of the symbolism of our salvation. Now, to be honest with you, this is very confusing to a lot of people, so I'm going to take my time to do my best to slowly break it down. So some of you might need to take a little note here or there, because if you try to just grasp this audibly, does that, that work? I don't know. Uh, but but uh, audibly, there we go. If you try to take this just with your ears, you may get it, you may not. So Because there's a deep truth here, but trying to say it is a little bit tricky. So, I've broken it down in this way. Uh, he then says that in the, in the ark, only eight people were saved. Uh, and water was involved in their salvation. Now, this water is an antitype or a picture of Christian baptism. Now, um, Peter uses the Greek word antitupon, which you see there in verse 21, and it's translated many different ways. Uh, in the NIV here, it's translated, which symbolizes baptism. Some of your other translations say what? When it uh, corresponds to... Uh, uh, that's the uh, I think that's the RSV uh, that says that or NASV ESV RSV says it as as well that corresponds to well and corresponding to that well in order to get a better idea what that word means go with me to Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty four. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. This is the only other time in the New Testament this same word, antitupon, is used. Alright? And in verse 24 it says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Now, where my translation here says, which was only a copy of the true one, that's the Greek word antitupon again. And we... I'm sorry? Copies. Copy. You see, again, the whole picture of... Remember when the temple and the tabernacle was, was designed by God, and He gave Moses the instructions on how specifically it was supposed to be made. It was a picture of what? Heaven. The heavenly temple. The heavenly throne of God. And Jesus didn't enter into a man-made temple like the priests would do and the high priest would do, which is only a copy of the one. And if you know anything about the history of not only the tabernacle, but the temple periods and the many different temples that were built and, and all, uh, there were some that looked nicer than others. They had the basic components, the basic structure, the basic layout, but they were different. But they were just a picture of something down the road, a antitype. Okay? Now, back here in First Peter 3... 
Peter says that the water of the flood was a picture or an antitype or a copy or something that talks about something else that's coming. And he says it points to baptism. Now, in order to grasp this is, he says two things here. He says the water of the flood symbolizes baptism and baptism symbolizes salvation. Now, that's where we're going to get a little tricky here, so stick with me. All right? So we're going to have, we have two pictures here. We have the water of the flood symbolizing baptism and baptism symbolizing salvation. Now, if you look closely, though, you'll notice that the water of the flood and the water of the baptism both speak of judgment. Can anybody tell me how that is? How is the water of the flood and the water of baptism both speaking of judgment or pointing to judgment? Any ideas? Death. Exactly. Remember, the water of the flood brought death. And when you're baptized, remember the Bible, baptizo means to dip or to dunk under. When you are brought down under the water, it pictures what? Death. You're died with Christ and risen to new life. And so the water of the flood, which brought death, also is in the water of baptism is a picture of death in, in, our, in our baptism. All right? But at the same time, it was the water tied to faith in the ark, if you will, that saved them. You know, it's interesting, the water is the picture of judgment, but at the same time, because of the ark and their faith in what God had promised in the ark, which is a picture of Jesus, the water actually saved them. Isn't that interesting? You know, and the water of baptism, again, tied to our faith in Jesus, is picture of what's really saving us. And this is where Peter makes a statement here that other people have had a, a heyday with, saying, well, he's saying that the actual baptism is what saves you. And he has to quickly clarify what he just said. And you'll catch here, he's saying, I'm not saying the actual baptism itself is what saves you. There are some people that think that you're not saved unless you've been baptized. You're not, you're, because baptism or salvation happens at the moment of your baptism. You hopefully understand the Bible says that we're saved by faith, not of works. And we're going to look at that passage in just a second. But he's simply saying here, it was the water tied to the ark that saved them and the water of baptism tied to faith in Jesus' death and resurrection that saves us also. As you can see how this is a little bit cloudy and, and all, but it's going to become clear in just a second, so stick with me here. Oh yeah, of course he was saved. He wasn't Agreed. But again, you have to understand, these same people that think that you have to be baptized or you're not saved, uh, they would say because, uh, you know, uh, Jesus hadn't yet died and he was still Old Testament and all that kind of stuff. So it, 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 that's where they, they have lots of reasons for why they do what they do. But I actually know a man who was in a church that I was pastor of in Chicago who had come from this background and he still struggled. He wanted us to be right. But he still struggled because he was raised in that denomination that taught if you weren't baptized, you didn't go to heaven. Well, at the same time, I asked him one day, I said, let's just say you're in a little church that doesn't have a baptistry. There's a pond across the street. You trust Christ as your Savior. You walk across the street to go get baptized and you're hit by a truck. Is that person is in heaven? And this is what he said. I hope so. <laughs> He just, it just, the whole idea, you know, he had been raised that if you weren't baptized, you weren't saved. Now, baptism is important. The Bible teaches that it's one of the first things Jesus tells us to do. But again, it's a picture of, as Peter says here, our pledge of a good conscience toward God. It doesn't save you, alright? But at the same time, um, he then quickly says that what he's saying is that by 
that we are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's go back and read this again now. Let's start in verse uh, 20. It says, Who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this symbolizes, or this water, some of your translations say, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, or the actual act, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And then he realizes, we got to make this more clear. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're not saved by being baptized. You're not saved by the act of itself. You're not even saved because you think you've got a good conscience. You're saved because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And your faith, just like Noah had to put his faith in what God had said and get in the boat that God had told him to put his faith in, we need to get in the boat, if you will, of putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Go ahead. In some places, in some places it does. In some places in the Bible, we're not going to go there, but in Romans 6 you'll see that it talks about your being crucified with Christ and your baptism almost like they're the same thing. Well, you have to keep in mind also that we have kind of done something over the years in Christendom that has taken us a little bit away from um, the biblical demonstration of baptism. Nowadays, if someone were to believe in Jesus Christ, we would say, pray this prayer. And then we'd say, okay, now that you've trusted Christ, you need to be baptized to show what's happened. Back in biblical times, their baptism was their prayer. If you preach the message... And they said, well, I believe. They didn't say, pray this prayer. They said, be baptized. It was your prayer. It was a public profession of your faith. And so a lot of churches still to this day keep a baptistry full. And if someone walks to the aisle that Sunday, they walk them right up in there and they baptize them right then. And that's why we see in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, as Philip was sharing the gospel with him, he says, well, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? In other words, the baptism must have been a part of the presentation of the gospel, if you understand what I'm saying. So nowadays we say, you want to believe Jesus? Pray this prayer. Back then they didn't say pray this prayer. They said be baptized. That was your prayer. That was your Lord. I am identifying with you. The old me is gone. I'm died with Christ. I'm risen to new life. And your baptism was your profession of your faith. It was your prayer. Okay? So we kind of hurt ourselves a little bit over the years by saying, well, just pray this prayer and then we'll schedule you in a month or two to be baptized. That's what happens a lot. You know, it's just the way it is. So again, this isn't to now start a new denomination or anything like that. But I'm just telling you, your baptism was your prayer. They have to heat the water now. I know, exactly. But not in all churches, trust me. It's an outward symbol of an inward change. Exactly. I, I, I've always told people that I really believe that if I'm a pastor of a church somewhere and I was preaching, if I was just preaching anywhere, whether I was a pastor or not, and someone decided that they were going to trust Christ right there and then, I think they were saved before they left the pew. You know what I'm saying? As they were, they, they, they made that decision to get up and go. I think they're saved at that moment there. The, the, the praying the prayer with the preacher at the front just makes us feel better. You know? It's just one of those kind of deals. But you have to understand now how important baptism was. It was their public identification with Jesus Christ. And Peter says that just like Christ was preaching through Noah in his day to the wicked generation... 
as he was faithful to righteousness and obedience, and everybody else was against him, and Jesus was preaching through him, God was also using the water as a picture of something as well. And the water is a picture of our baptism. And our baptism is a picture of our salvation. Not the removal of dirt from the body, not the water itself that saves you, but it's a picture of our pledge of our faith in Jesus Christ. And actually it's pledging our faith in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So let me just remind you of a passage that we all could probably quote, but I want you to go back and look at it and look closely. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. I, it's one of the most awesome passages of Scripture, and it's so hard to say this, these are better than others, so just don't read anything into that. But at the same time, it, it's one of the most encouraging for many people as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Look at what, what Paul says here. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, this is in verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, we're saved by faith, by God's grace, not of anything we do. So if you think you're saved because you were baptized, uh, exactly, you're in trouble. You're not saved because you were baptized. You're saved because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But hopefully you were baptized. Because, I mean... The Bible says really clearly this is how you identify, how you publicly tell people. Well, I'm just going to tell people I trust Jesus. Well, if the one who wrote this book is supposedly living inside of you, and he said, be baptized to identify with me, you better be baptized. You understand what I'm saying? And so that's, that's the importance of baptism. I don't want to, to diminish the importance of baptism at all. It is very strongly taught. That's why when Peter was preaching at Pentecost and they were cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit, they said, well, what must we do to be saved? And he said what? Repent, believe, and be baptized. Now again, doesn't mean that your baptism saves you, but it was your way of saying, I believe. And personally, this is, this is Jim speaking here. Um, I actually don't like baptisms in churches. Baptism was meant to be a public identification with Jesus Christ in front of the world. Nowadays, we do it in a nice, cozy, heated pool, and mostly in front of believers. And everybody claps, and we think it's wonderful. And trust me, I still to this day think it's awesome to see someone get baptized. And I'm not saying we should rip the tanks out of our churches. I'm just saying, why don't we do it outside? A lot of churches doing that now. They go to the beach, or they go to a pond, or they go to someone's backyard pool. I'm just saying, make it a public identification. Go ahead. The thing that concerns me is more the word baptism. The issue is, is this person who's being baptized actually understand that it is that identification, that when Christ died, they died. When He arose, they arose. I sometimes think that they don't understand that. Many people die of their sins, but nobody rises to walk in newness of life. Right. Well, and I'll be honest with you. I think there might be some in this room that still struggle with it, to be honest with you, Jim. Um, because we're still in that process of really understanding what Christ did when we put our faith in Him. But I would agree. And that's where we're going to be heading in, in the verses to come. Um, you're not just saying, oh, good, I'm not going to hell. You know, as, as Jim just brought out, you're, 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 you're publicly saying... I've died with Christ, and I'm rising to walk in newness of life. I'm a new creation now. But how many of us actually really focus on being obedient to God and living in this new way? And so this is kind of what Peter's talking about. I love the fact that, um, and I put it this way in my notes, in case someone might question if Jesus has the power to save us, 
Peter then adds that Jesus is now in full control of all powers and all authorities as he sits at God's right hand. So let's go back and take a look at how he says this now, starting in, in, in uh, verse 21. And it says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Okay, not the removal of dirt from the body or the actual act of baptism, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Uh, Folks, I can tell you right now, if you'd ask me if I died, would I go to heaven? Yes. You know why? Because God made a promise, and He taught in His Word that if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that He rose from the dead, and you put your faith in Him, He will give you eternal life. And I have a good conscience toward God right now. I can look you in the eye and say, I will pledge that I have a good conscience toward God. Oh, and by the way, it's not resting in anything I've done. It's not resting in my good works. It's not resting in my church membership. It's not resting in my baptism. It is resting in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the promise of God. And uh, if the Bible said to trust Christ and hop on one foot for 24 hours to show everybody that's what you've done, we'd do it. The Lord, by God's Word, says, believe and be baptized. Identify with Him. So, with Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, with all authority under Him, I want to take us back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and remind you of verses 3 through 5 and encourage you with that tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Just listen to this encouragement. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that good news? That's awesome news. It's being held for you. And our faith, listen closely though, our faith is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to challenge you as we start now to move into chapter 4. I want to challenge you to when you think about Jesus, to not picture the Jesus that walked on the earth in man's body. But I want to challenge you to picture the Jesus that John saw in Revelation chapter 1. Because that's what he looks like now. You see, we have a tendency to think about the meek and lowly Jesus. When He walked on the earth and He was meek and mild and a bruised reed, He wouldn't wouldn't bend or anything like that. But I don't think we really understand who it is we're talking about. Who it is that we have identified with. Who it is that we are united with. And He's in us and we're in Him and, and we're baptized in Jesus. I want you to think about the resurrected Jesus Christ that when John saw Him on the Isle of Patmos and he turned around to see who it was, he immediately fell on his face. Folks, if there's anybody that knew who Jesus was, it was John. I mean, John leaned against his breast at the Lord's Supper. John saw him transfigured. John was there all the time and even saw things that the other disciples didn't see. If anybody knew Jesus, it would be John. And when Jesus showed up on the Isle of Patmos to visit John, John did not say, hey, buddy. He fell at his feet as though dead. I think we need to really stop thinking that Jesus is still like us. He took on our form. I'll get right to you. He took on our form for a time and for a reason. And He still has a human body. He will for eternity. But at the same time, 
it's a glorified body. And He is King of kings and Lord of lords. I think when we talk to Him in prayer, it will change. And when we consider Him in that way, it may change whether or not we are living this new life. Or whether or not we think about the Jesus that's like us. Yes, ma'am. And his authority. And his authority. Yep. There was a Bible study that I was going to do that said, these people who say that they saw Jesus Christ and he appeared to them cannot possibly be Jesus Christ because if you look in the book of Revelations, it talks about Christ with the slanted eyes and the, you know, and so there's no way that anybody today can actually. Well, and, and uh, the best thing I can tell you is this. He can appear however he chooses, because he is God. Yeah, and so uh, I, I wouldn't really get into whether they did or they didn't. Uh, definitely the way he was seen by John. It is definitely possible that God would reveal himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but again, like I say, we're not going to put God in a box and say he only looks like this now. You know, and I'm not saying that at all. Go now to 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's look at verses 1 through 6. Because here we're going to get into a very interesting statement that Peter makes. And, and hopefully by God's conviction, not Jim's, this will start to hit us a little bit deeper. Because it's been easy to read about those other Christians who are suffering persecution in Nero's day. It's been easy to think about maybe those who might be suffering persecution because we sit in comfortable America here and we're complaining because the AC is not working real good in the room. You know, but he's about to speak to us. It says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for the evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to the God in regard to the spirit. Now there's a lot here. But what I want you to understand is... Peter is tying chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 18. And we miss it sometimes. Alright, look at verse 18 again. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jump to verse 4. So verses 19 through 22 are parenthetical. Verse 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because He who has suffered in His body is done with sin. So we're going to try to wrestle with this tonight, because there's something pretty cool here, if we're willing to let it sink in. Alright? In, Peter's encouraging his, uh, continuing his encouragement to live obediently and righteously, righteously in this wicked world, even if they abuse you for it verbally or physically. Alright? But then he makes this very interesting statement. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Now let's be honest. There are not many of us here that can say, we know what that means. 
We don't. So I'm going to try my best to give you some ideas as to possibilities as to what this means. And I think they honestly all could be correct. There's no one answer to this. All right. Again, in order to grasp this, you've got to understand that verse four, chapter 4, verse 1 is tied to chapter 3, verse 18. Secondly, though, we see that there is some re- form of a reference here to living in the Spirit as opposed to living in the flesh. Now, this is important for us. Now, in order to, to get, go where we need to go, let me give you a little bit of background in what was going on in that day. Uh, the, the Greeks believed in some form of dualism. All right, the, 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 the Greek philosophy or, or kind of thought was is that you had a body and you had a soul. And you just try to ignore your body as much as possible and try to live in your spirit. But they would do it in many different ways. You had all sorts of different ways. Some would say that they would just treat their body horribly and ignore it. Just that The flesh is bad. The spirit is the only thing that's good. And they would just starve themselves, beat themselves, freeze themselves, whatever it was, to show that they were living for the spirit and not the body. Asceticism is what it's called. There were others who said, you know what, the flesh is always going to be bad and it'll never be good, only the spirit's good, and so I'll do whatever I want in my flesh because it doesn't really matter, I'm a spirit being, and they would be sexually immoral and just carouse and do whatever because the flesh is always bad and that's not really me. But Christian Hebrews and Christians had the mindset that the body and the soul were connected. And that's what we're trying to understand as well, as we now, as being born again, when you got saved, what part of you was renewed? Your spirit. Did it have an effect on your flesh? Let me ask the question again. When you get saved, did it have an effect on your flesh? Yeah, some are saying yes and some are saying no. Guess what? The answer is no and yes. Alright, here's why. No, when you got saved, your cholesterol did not drop. You did not lose 15 pounds. Your wrinkles didn't disappear. Maybe in some cases they might have if the stress went away. But it really didn't affect your flesh in that way. Yet... Your spirit, your soul, is still very connected to your body. And if you will learn to let Jesus have control over your spirit, it will have an effect on your body. The same Jesus who had victory over His flesh, which was just like ours, and He was without sin, can give us victory over these mortal bodies. So did it have an effect when we get saved? No, it didn't in that sense. But yes, it will if we learn to live in the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. That's where we're going to be going now. I don't want you to think that you're two separate entities and your flesh and your spirit and I'm just going to live in this. No, no, your flesh is connected to your soul and your spirit. There is a connection there. They're tied together and they will be until you get your new body. Alright? That's why Paul said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't. Things I don't want to do, I do. Who, who can save me from this body of death? But then thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. That's why he would say, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. You have control over your mortal body through the Spirit of God within you. So I don't want you to see yourself as, hey, my spirit's good, my flesh is bad, whatever. No. And I don't want you saying, oh, my flesh is so bad, I just got to treat it bad. No, 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 no. It's all combined in the mind of God. And He's going to teach you how to have victory over this flesh. Peter then says that since Jesus suffered in His body... And he, as it says in verse 18 of chapter 3, he was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. 
we need to arm ourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. That's a toughie. Let me throw a couple things out at you to chew on. Here's the first one. When someone is willing to suffer physically for the sake of Christ, they have moved to a level of saying no to the flesh that most Christians never get to. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us struggle with our fleshly desires, correct? Hopefully I'm not talking to anybody here that doesn't understand what I'm talking about. Hopefully every one of us understands Paul when he says, things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't. We all understand that struggle, correct? Alright, now let me just quickly just say to you, you're going to be tempted until you die. Uh, Please don't ever hear that you're never going to have to struggle. I used to think when I was a younger Christian that as I got more mature in Christ, temptations would just fall by the wayside and I wouldn't be tempted anymore. Until one day, I read that Jesus was still being tempted in the garden. And Jesus was God. And He was flawless. He was sinless. He was pure. And if Jesus was tempted, guess what? Jim's going to be tempted until I die. Yet, it is possible to have victory over the flesh, but most of us still struggle with our fleshly desires on a daily basis. We have trouble saying no to the flesh in the areas of sexual purity. Some of us struggle with lust. Some of us have trouble with gluttony. Some of us have trouble with our physical appearance and making sure that we look just right or just so. And I could go on and on. There's a possibility that what Peter's saying here is that someone who is willing to experience pain in this process is definitely moving to a level of victory over sin that most have never gotten to or will never unfortunately get to. There's another level of it too. Also, remember, keep in mind, he was writing to Christians who were being persecuted under Nero, and you know what was happening to them. If you're suffering physically for the sake of Christ, when your life is in jeopardy, you will not be worried about eating too many donuts or missing your favorite TV show. Right? When you're in that level of suffering, everything else is not an issue. You're not worried about whether or not you've missed your favorite show. I made a little comment here. We think we're spiritual giants if we say no to chocolate for a week. Now folks, please hear me. When we're about to go, I want you to hear that that I love you. And I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to anybody else. I praise God that I don't wrestle in many areas that other people struggle with. I've never had a problem with alcohol. I've never had a problem with, with, with drugs or those types of things. But let me just tell you, I struggle with my flesh as well. And as I like to always say, my sin is ever before me. <laughs> Alright? I understand that what I'm about to tell you is hard. But... It's necessary for us to move forward because in the same passage that we were talking about rising to walk in newness of life, he goes right into we need to be willing to suffer in our bodies. We need to have a mindset that says we're willing to suffer in our bodies. Now we here in America may never get to the place where we're sawn in two. We may never get to a place where they crucify us upside down. We may never get to the place where we're beheaded because we believe in Jesus Christ. But let me just at least say to you 
that there is a level that the Bible teaches of saying no to the flesh, which is painful and hard at times, that Christians today have just not even considered when the Bible is full of it. The Bible says uh, that we are to practice fasting and prayer. And if we're honest with ourselves, those aren't easy for us. Fasting is a hard thing. We've tried. And we get into that first day, we're thinking, I ain't going to make it. Now, unfortunately, many people have turned fasting and prayer into some kind of superstitious kind of a thing. I know of people that when they want to try to cast out a demon, they go into times of fasting and prayer. And one day when I was studying the scriptures and I was reading, I saw how Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and, and his disciples who hadn't gone up with him on the mountain, not all of them had, the ones that had been left behind had been trying to cast this demon out of an, a young boy and they were unable. And uh, the parents came running up and said, your disciples, we asked them to do it and they weren't able. And Jesus realized that a crowd was starting to gather and he quickly said to the demon, come out of him. And the demon left. The disciples come later on and they say to him, how come... How come we couldn't cast this demon out? I mean, Jesus, we've been able to cast out demons before. How come we couldn't cast this one out? And Jesus said a very interesting thing. He said, this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer. And then it hit me. Jesus didn't fast, nor did He pray. He didn't even say, oh, Father, please get the... He just said, come out. And that's when God began to speak to my heart that Jesus lived a life of continual, regular times of fasting and prayer. He intentionally would do the hard thing and get up early in the morning or stay up late at night and He would get alone with the Father. He learned how to say no to the flesh. And in those areas, He began to have spiritual victory, if you will. And I don't even like the word began, but He experienced spiritual victory because He lived in this body just like you and me. And listen to what I'm going to tell you. This Just this week, God has opened my eyes to. I thought that he's been tempted in every way in which I have, and I've come to realize it means more than that. You see, because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God will not allow us to be tempted with more than we're able to bear, correct? So in other words, when you and I are tempted, God has a filter that controls how much we're tempted. Jesus didn't have that filter. Did you catch that? When we look at how Jesus was tempted like you and me, Uh Uh-uh. He was tempted far worse than you or me. Because there was no, I'm going to control how much Satan's allowed to tempt him, so it's only as much as Jesus can bear. He got the full brunt of it, folks. We get a filtered version. Yes, the ways in which we've been tempted, he was tempted. But the level, please don't think that Jesus was tempted in the same level as you. He had it hard. But Jesus, the same Jesus that lives within you, knew how to say no to the flesh. So instead of us sitting here and me trying to say you need to be like those persecuted believers over in the Middle East right now, and you need to be willing to die for Jesus, yes, we need to be willing if that need be the case, but why don't we start where we are? Why don't we let Jesus speak to us where we are? He knows our frame. He knows where we are. He knows what we can handle. He also is challenging us to practice regular times of saying no to the flesh. You need to be willing to arm yourself with that same mentality. Oh, by the way, a lot of you might not realize it because you don't see it in the English. But when he says arm yourselves, it was a military term. 
You've got to mentally be prepared for war. Ephesians 6. So let me just challenge you. Fasting and prayer helps us to say no to our bodies. It teaches us to have victory over the flesh and how to live by the Spirit during those times. Remember how we looked earlier? There's a a picture here of not living in in the flesh but in the Spirit. Again, you don't have to be under the threat of death to live like this. But you must be willing to deny yourself in order to follow Christ and let Him live His life through you. So let me take you to a couple of passages there. Well, one we like to quote, but another one we don't like to hear. Go to Luke 9. We'll deal with the one that we don't like to hear first, then we'll go to the one we like to quote, even though we don't do it. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Luke 9.23 Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, how often? Daily. Daily. And follow Me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let me just tell you here. Look at this. If anyone was going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to what? We need to say no to ourselves and to our flesh. And we need to be willing to die, whatever that means, daily. Now, let me just talk to you from a pastor's perspective. Do you realize that most pastors today deal with church folk who continually complain that it's too hot, too cold, music's too loud, don't like the songs? Do you understand what I'm talking about? Here we are, thinking we're walking with Jesus, and we spend all our time saying, it's not comfortable for me. And you wonder why we don't hear people preach on this passage. You wonder why we don't hear messages on fasting. You know, when Jesus taught, when you pray, He said, do it this way. He said, when you give, do it this way in Matthew 6. He said, when you fast. He didn't say if. So I want you to understand this. If you really want to arm yourselves with this mindset that Jesus had, if you don't want this to be a, boy, we just had a good Bible study and and, uh, we're, we're already through 1 Peter almost and then we'll be going on to the next book and we've studied Romans and we've studied Revelation and we've studied Hebrews and aren't we good people because we read the Bible. Listen to me. If you want to move into living in the Spirit, let's become people who are willing to say, Lord, maybe I'm not ready to laid my head on a chopping block for you yet. But you're not asking that of me. You've got me in America. But you are saying to me that I have to be willing to say no to the flesh. Listen closely. Do not let any human being tell you what that's supposed to look like. You do not let a preacher tell you that you need to give up this or you need to give up that. You do not... Don't. Personally, I'm not for the Lent stuff. This is just me. But the reason is... The typical, you know where Lent comes from? It comes from the old pagan practice of Mardi Gras. You see, Lent happens right up until Mardi Gras. And in Mardi Gras, you get to do everything you want to do. So let's, 
So it's the other way around. Sorry, yes. Yeah, Mardi Gras starts it, and then you go into Lent. So we're, tomorrow we're going to have to give up something. Thank you. Get me. I got it backwards there. Mardi Gras starts, and then Lent the day after that is Ash Wednesday. Mardi Gras is always on Tuesday, Mardi Gras. And so what they do on Mardi Gras is they do everything. Because tomorrow I'm going to have to give up something. Did you catch that? Tonight, today on Mardi Gras, we will do everything we want to do. Tomorrow I'm going to give up Coke. Do you see what I'm saying? Instead of saying, I practice Lent, why don't you let the Spirit of God within you teach you for a time and let Him set the time how to practice saying no to your flesh. It might mean turn your computer off for a while. Let God tell you what that is. It might mean turn your TV off for a while. Let God tell you what that is. Too many Christians have taken this and turned it into a new doctrine and you're a sinner if you watch that show. Or not. Let the Spirit of God tell you what it is it's supposed to be. But folks, you want to begin to experience living in the Spirit and not continually giving in to the flesh? You have to arm yourself with the mentality that says you're willing to suffer in your body. Because if you suffer in your body, you get victory over sin. Maybe we're in the baby stage. Maybe we're not at that level where we would be like the men and women of Hebrews. But why don't we let the Spirit of God at least start us off into practicing saying no. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now let me take you to the passage we like to quote. And maybe you'll see it from a new perspective. Go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, I beseech you, some of your translations say, I beg you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, and pretty much what he's just said, that is everything in the world is all about God. And He's let us be a part of it. And He's going to glorify us with Him for eternity. And in view of the fact that He's let us be a part of this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Did you catch what he's saying here? Sounds like daily. Because this renewing of your mind, in the Greek, it means daily renewing. It actually is what it says in the Greek. Daily renewing of your mind. Every day, you're going to have to get up and say, I still got this flesh. I'm pretty sure you do, don't you, when you get up and look in the mirror? Oh, boy. I still got this flesh. And some of us try to cover it up with paint and all sorts of stuff. I try to find loose clothing so you can't see it as much. But we all every day get up and acknowledge that we're still in the flesh. That doesn't mean that God wants us to treat our flesh horribly and beat ourselves or cut ourselves. No, 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 no. This is a body that He's going to teach you how to have victory over and one day you're going to get a new one. And until then, it's a chance for us to lay our bodies, that's what it says, on the altar. And submit to the Spirit. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, which is living for self and self-gratification, but be transformed by the daily renewing of your mind. And then you'll begin to experience living in the Spirit. Go ahead. I was just going to say, we have a new spirit. 
nodding, there's going to be, it's going to change. It's going to change. If you're his. Mm-hmm. And then it's done through the renewing of your mind, which would be through the Word of God. Mm-hmm. In other words, changing out the old with the new, the Word of God will change you. You're to be a hearer of the Word, yep. not just a doer. Or excuse me, you are not only to be a hearer, hearer but a doer. a doer. That's correct. So as you meditate in the Word, you can expect that the more we yield in obedience and to Jesus within us, the more He takes over. And oh, by the way, He's already lived in a body like yours and mine, and He knows how to win. He knows how to win. And we have to learn how to yield to Him. Alright, like I said earlier, God knows your strength. He knows what is too much too soon. He, we must trust Him and be willing to die to self daily in whatever way that is necessary. And, and as I was making these notes, we just think about saying no to food or different things like that, but um, how about children obey your parents? Well, of course, yeah, you're on that side that you like that one, but let's just be honest. Children, is that something our flesh wants to do? It's a good way to practice saying no to your flesh when your flesh wants to say no to mom and dad. Submit to mom and dad. Husbands, love your wives in the same way Jesus loves the church. By the way, Jesus not only died for the church, He intentionally pursues the church. Husbands, let's be honest. That is not what our flesh wants to do. Our flesh wants to get in a chair with a remote and have her bring things to us. Amen. I'm just telling you, that's what our flesh... That's what our flesh wants to do. Let's just be honest. It is not our first thought to intentionally lay down our will for her. Wives, submit to your husbands. We've already had that study. That is definitely not your first thought in the morning, is it? No. You've already got a list for your husband of all things you want him to do. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is more than just saying no to chocolate, folks. This is... Not letting the flesh, which is warring against your soul, have victory. So let's not sit here and say, well, this is talking to people that are being persecuted for Christ. No, this is talking to us. Arm yourself with the same mentality, and you're going to have to do it daily. You're going to have to do it daily. And then I love what he says next. Look at verse 6. This is why the gospel is preached. This is why it was preached even to those who are now dead. There's two things he brings out here, and we'll see if we have time to get there. If not, we'll just pick it up when we leave off. It was, the gospel was preached so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but also to live according to God in regard to the spirits. Talking to two groups of people here. Those who are going to be judged according to what they've done in the body, because they've never been redeemed spiritually, they're still spiritually dead. So those that stand before the great white throne judgment are going to be judged according to what they've done in the body. And as you know, they're going to be the books are going to be opened and everything they've done, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12, there isn't an idle word that isn't written down. So when they stand before the great white throne of judgment, those who have already lost, who are not going to be born again, who have not been redeemed, who are going to stand before God at that judgment, listen... The Bible says that their books were open and the book of life was open. If they're even there, their name's not in the book of life. But why were the other books opened? Everything they had ever done was recorded. And God knows. 
And they're going to be judged according to what they did while in the body. But also, we're going to be judged according to God in regard to our spirits. We're going to stand before a judgment as well. It's not the great white throne judgment. It's not the one we're determined whether or not we get into heaven. That's already been given to us. But we will, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, stand before the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ, where He will determine our eternal, and I don't think we understand that. If you want to understand it more, go on the cruise. It's a little commercial. But at the same time, we don't really understand the fact that we will be rewarded or, listen, suffer loss... For eternity. And He wants us to live in this new life. Yes, we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live. But now we live risen to walk in newness of life, saying no to the flesh, letting His Spirit live through us. And one day He's going to reward us or we will miss out for eternity on whether or not we let Him do it. I think it's time that we took serious what it is we've been given. So let's not compare ourselves with those who are in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Why don't we just be faithful to live the life that God has for us here in America? See, this is where the preachers have tried to use guilt to say, you need to be like those people over... No, no, no. You know what? The Bible says in Acts 17 that God determined exactly when we would live and where we would live. And if He's chosen for you to be here... Don't feel bad about the fact that He's chosen for you to be here. This is where He's wanting to accomplish His purposes for His glory in your life. If He wants to use you overseas, you'll know that because you'll want to go. But if this is where you are, it's where you are. And we're not going to use guilt. We're going to let the Spirit of God just speak to us and challenge us. Go ahead, Jeff. I've lived among those that you're talking about, and it's the day-to-day living that they fail just as much as we do. That's why Romans chapter 12 has verse 3 and following. Mm-hmm. That's okay, here's your practical. Love one another in brotherly affection. You know, don't consider yourself a more than others. It's the day-to-day among the brothers that we see it and we fail just as much. Yep. So, I'm going to show you three, actually two passages and the third one we're going to come back to next week. Because I want to just, I don't want to skip over this. This is why the gospel's preached. Alright? So we're going to come back to that next week. But let me just show you two quick passages in wrapping up for tonight. Go to John chapter 16, verse 8. By the way, for those that are listening, say, how come that guy in the back of the room sounded like Jim? That's my brother. He sounded smarter. Chris, you will edit that, won't you? Alright. For Susan's sake. Alright? Now, listen to what it says in John 16, verse 8. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, when He comes... He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Remember, the Gospels preached for two reasons. One, to show the world that rejects that they're going to be judged. But it's also so that we who respond would live to walk in newness of life. So, here He says when the Holy Spirit comes, and He's already come, and He's in the world right now, He's going to convict the world of sin and guilt, judgment, and righteousness. Now, here's the. I, I paraphrase it this way: He's going to re- re- judge, uh, convict the world in regard to their sin, their need for righteousness, and the fact that there's a coming judgment. That's the Holy Spirit's job, by the way. It's not yours. Relax. You don't have to show them they're sinners. That's God's job. Too many Christians think it's their job to show them they're sinners. You can't convict anybody, and you actually get in the way. So just leave it alone as God's job. All right. 
Uh, we have cockroaches on our back porch like everybody in Florida does. And I don't go out at night and say, you're a cockroach, you're a cockroach, you're a cockroach. What do I do? I turn the light on. And they know they're a cockroach and they run. All right? Don't stand on a box and say, you're a cockroach, you're a cockroach, you're a cockroach. Live as Jesus. Let the light shine and they'll know where they stand. Okay? The Spirit of God will convict them. Go to, and I'm not calling lost people cockroaches very much. All right, look at, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Where we're going to go next week is dealing with this being made alive by the Spirit. We're going to dive into what does that mean? Because I think we've gotten a taste tonight that this is what God is looking for from us. We need to be willing to say no to our flesh. We need to be willing to let the Spirit of God live through us. But what does it mean to be made alive by the Spirit? That's where we're going to go next week. Alright? Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank You so much for the way in which Your Word, through Your Spirit, will teach us so many things. And Lord... Thank You that You love us and You know us and You want to have something here for us. Not a history lesson about Nero's time, per se, as much as You want to speak to us right now. And Lord, You want to glorify Yourself here in America, here on the beach side, over here in Florida, for Your purposes and for Your glory. And You want to use us. In order for that to happen, though, we have to daily lay ourselves and our flesh on the altar. And we need to let You, through Your Spirit, have preeminence and rule and reign. When that happens, we will have victory over sin, and we will bring glory to You. Lord, maybe many of us in this room are at the baby stage of saying no to the flesh, but that's okay. You know that, and You love us. And Your mercies are new every morning. So Father, may we not just be hearers of the Word and deceive ourselves, May we be doers and let You begin to show us where You want us to begin this practice of fasting and prayer. That we would spend our time looking to You, talking to You, allowing You to speak to us. And Father, I thank You for what You're going to do because I know that everything You have for us, even though it may seem painful, even though it seems hard, is for our best. Lord, I also know that when we allow You to do this, You're going to do some stuff in our lives that's going to get us so excited, we're going to try to make everybody do it the way we did it. Keep us from that as well. Lord, may we learn to walk in this newness of life. We understand dying with You and being risen to new life in some sense. Give us a deeper understanding of what our baptism means. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.